that the Native Americans talk about, and I know I probably mentioned this on other podcasts, but it's called the grief basket. And there's this basket. Have Did you remember me explaining this? There's this basket that Native Americans of some tribes use that the women, you know, would go out and they would collect little pieces of wood to make the fire that was going to be inside the teepee or inside the lodge and <clears throat> where they live. And yet they want to use these very small sticks because... Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. feels to be free. Yeah. Um, is there anybody? I, there can't be anybody listening to me who is um, not <clears throat> sick in their hearts and disgusted by what has been happening. What's been happening to these immigrant children? Um, the president has way too much power. 
And the president always did have way too much power, uh, maybe not in the Constitution originally, but that's a whole complicated issue. <clears throat> Why the president was uh, took on power that uh, that the Constitution doesn't necessarily grant, although now we're seeing in this modern age when there's so much power that can be exercised in certain ways that could never be exercised before. Now we see um, what this uh, abuse of power can do. I mean, it's been <clears throat> very bad or pretty bad since Roosevelt's time, which seemed to be necessary to save the country and even the world. But um, it's only when – and, you know, Obama had a pretty bad record with immigrants too. But it's only when you see somebody who is so demonstrably – uh, an egocentric sadist, uh, completely off the charts in terms of abusing other human beings as this um, person in the White House. It's That's when you see that we've gone way too far with presidential powers. All these executive orders, <clears throat> all this moving around of, um, of armed forces all over the world, all this uh, spending money spying <coughs> on our own citizens, um, by the government, billions of dollars, which Obama did. I mean, <coughs> it doesn't really matter who the president is. I mean, it's, it's way out of control. And like I say, it's only when you see somebody who, who publicly um, uh, revels in abusing his power and using his uh, power to, be, uh, to express his sadism as this man then you really see it. I mean, basically, the, the history of the world, it seems to me, is, uh, is the history of people who are powerful against the people who are weak. It's power against weakness, the strong against the weak. It's the history of the world. <clears throat> and it's been playing out right up into this second. <clears throat> There's going to be a lot of coughing today, even more than usual. So if you don't like it, today's not a good day to... Uh, <laughs> to uh, listen, but you might want to listen, see if I can get through this show. I don't even know if I can. It's been uh, basically just a cough and a cold that's lasting for weeks, and I wasn't here <clears throat> live last week, but I am this week, sort of partially live. Um, power, strong against the weak. Um, in New York City, I've, ex I've experienced this myself, different jobs I had, uh, welfare department, probation department, who has the power, who uses the power, how they use the power, who's weak, how they got weak, how they stay weak, um, sociologically, economically, psychologically, um, even in your own self, right? There's strong parts of you and weak parts of you, always struggling with each other. Uh, <clears throat> landlords, I remember the landlords I, uh, I saw and I dealt with and having lived and living in New York, living in any city, or living hardly almost any place, but especially in the city, you deal with landlords all the time. And in my jobs that I had, working for the city and the state, I dealt with landlords. <clears throat> Power, weakness. A couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a long story in the New York Times about the worst landlords in the city and their really criminal behavior. Um, detailed reports of the astounding suffering that uh, their uh, usually poor to middle class tenants go through. And you see this in the news every six months or so. It's always it's like clockwork. <clears throat> and, uh, and more than the detailed reports uh, of these horror shows that, uh, that, you, that you see with landlords treating tenants a certain way, the very authorities 
with the responsibility to police these bastards don't do their jobs, uh, most particularly the one place where tenants can go to legally force their landlords to do the right thing, New York City Housing Court, serves more as a hindrance than a help to tenants, really. Um, housing Court, <clears throat> by the way, is where landlords go, if you don't know what it is, it's where landlords go when they're trying to evict someone from their apartment. Uh, maybe you've been on the other end of that. Once I got a dispossessed for not paying rent, I wasn't paid up to date, and it didn't turn into evictions. First, it starts out with something called a dispossess, great old-fashioned British, English word, right? Dispossessed. You're possessed of something, and then you're dispossessed of it. And then if you don't deal with that in 30 days, you get an eviction notice. And then after 15 days after that or whatever, 30 days, you're out, unless you can um, make a case as to why <clears throat> the uh, landlord should keep you. Um, and it's never as simple as somebody's just not paying. Sometimes people don't pay their rent. And if you own the buildings... You, of course, the law is on your side. Um, this is where, so housing court is where landlords go when they're trying to evict people from their apartments. Um, and, but, of course, as always, as we could see by just reading the news every day, <clears throat> the deck is stacked in both the law and the bureaucracy against tenants and for landlords. Landlords, <laughs> the word. The stories of what some landlords do, especially the ones who are trying to sell the property, or empty out a building so they can renovate it and then you know rent it for a much higher price or even sell the apartments for huge amounts of money to people who, um, <clears throat> who have money. A lot of people floating around the city, in this city anyhow, who have hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, and they don't care who got kicked out of the last place they live in or who lived in a building that got torn down and a new fancy condo was put up. Well, who cares? A lot of people come from this city from foreign countries, from other states. They get jobs here. They, they show up here with, I'm not saying they're bad, but they should, some of them are. Uh, Ill-gotten gains for sure, especially the people from, uh, the rich people from foreign countries, the Russians, Saudi Arabians, Chinese, you know, whoever it is these days. It was before it was somebody else. But uh, people come here from this country and they want to make it big. They come to New York or the finance industry or whatever else, a law or something or medicine. And they come from somewhere else. They don't know the city. <clears throat> they just know when they're looking for a place for themselves or themselves and their families that they're shown some beautiful place that's been renovated. They don't know it's on the, the dead bodies, over the dead bodies or the bones of people who lived there who were too poor to fight back and, and afford to keep their place. And who knows? I mean, and who cares? <laughs> what, did, what am I seeing in the newspaper? That Melania Trump is wearing um, a jacket... Um, with the letters on it, uh, you know, I mean, this family, a whole bunch of them, just tone deaf is to put it mildly. I mean, the most insensitive people I've ever seen in any kind of public position like this. She's wearing a jacket. She visited someplace like uh, that has to do with the poor or the displaced. <clears throat> and she's wearing this jacket with big letters on the back. It says something like, I don't care. Do you? Is that what it said? Who is this woman? <laughs> Who are these people? <laughs> I, 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 I don't get it. Well, I, know, I, I don't know. They just have to go. And the sooner the better. Anyhow, uh, the stories of what, speaking of not caring, the stories of what some landlords do, um, especially the ones who want to, like, you know, turn over the property, quote, unquote, they make no repairs to ceilings or floors or walls, um, <clears throat> cracks, leaks, 
gaping holes through which mice and rats come into apartments, and no extermination to get rid of them, right? Um, so that the roaches swarm in plain sight. You know, there's like hundreds of them uh, just uh, swarming like some kind of nature video, only it's, you know, where you live. They don't fix boilers so that tenants get sick and even die from the cold in the winter in New York. Um, <clears throat> I saw this all the time when I was a welfare worker on the uh, Lower East Side and Brooklyn in the 60s and the early 70s. Landlords never fixed anything. If something like plumbing went wrong or ceased working altogether, they'd make on the most minimum, only the most minimal repairs to keep things working so that the health department didn't bother them, you know, just didn't condemn the building outright and the city take it over so they would lose their property. So they just do the minimal amount of repairs, which don't really work right, and use the cheap materials or whatever. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I would talk to these guys when, you know, as a probation officer, as a welfare worker, as a probation officer, when I could track them down. I mean, they didn't make it easy to find them. Uh, sometimes they lived, uh, you know, they were living, sometimes, most of the time, they were living in style, someplace on Fifth Avenue or Park Avenue or outside the city, you know, in some uh, fancy house in some fancy suburb, Long Island, Westchester, <clears throat> in some huge house, like I said, like maybe an acre of land, swimming pools, you know, the cars, the kids in good colleges, uh, while they own all these uh, rat-infested uh, slums. And... What they did in terms of management is they set up some crummy storefront in the neighborhood and they appointed some local slime ball, you know, to collect the rents and manage the buildings. This is what they did. Once in a rare while, though, I was able, maybe by accident or dogged, uh, you know, determination to catch them. And I felt I had the right, <clears throat> you know, maybe is this is the self-righteousness of a young man or because I couldn't bear the injustice whatever, no matter how old I was. I mean, I felt I had the right to question them because it was the city's money most of the time that was paying uh, their rents because most of these people were on welfare or in some way getting uh, money from the state or the city. So it was the taxpayers' money paying them and, you know, and enabling them to live this really high lifestyle, you know, uninfluenced by all the, uh, the horror of the, of the slums that they owned. And... Also, I think I just wanted to know because I was really puzzled, like I always am, on a purely human level, how they could act the way they did to other people. I just never got it, just like I don't get what the Trumps do. I mean, it's beyond me. I don't understand it. You know, I know to condemn it. I know we've got to get rid of these people one way or another, but I really actually don't understand the motive or, or what goes on in their minds or their hearts. <clears throat> when I could get a word in edgewise when I ran into these people, I'd ask them how they could live with themselves, right? consider themselves like decent husbands and fathers. I mean, you can imagine some, somebody in their 20s uh, finding some guy in his 50s or 60s and pinning them on the street or in a doorway or something. And I'd say, how, how can you live with yourself? <laughs> how, could, how could you consider yourself like a decent person or husband or father or your family you know, member? Um, when the families, you know, the, the, the women mostly and children in these buildings and men were, and old people were living worse than animals. Uh, animals in, uh, you know, on the street, not even animals in, a, in, in like, you know, in a house, like pets. I mean, their response and the guys I dealt with uh, were mostly white and the, uh, <coughs> the tenants were mostly black and, uh, black and Latino. I mean, their response was that these people were no better than animals anyway, and that if they fix things, if the landlords fix things, if they put fix things, if they put in new plumbing, 
and they plastered and they painted and fixed door locks and mailboxes that the people, my clients, um, who lived there would just break everything. That, uh, <coughs> that they, you know, the tenants, were uncivilized and didn't know how to care for things in the simplest ways. That they were junkies and drunks and just plain dumb, irresponsible people who broke everything or stole parts of the plumbing or broke into mailboxes and apartments, busting the locks and door frames, right? This is their argument, right? So um, go fuck yourself, kid. <laughs> and who are you to tell me this, right? It was true enough, always true enough that there was a lot of crime in these slums. Yes, it was crime and poverty. Uh, they always go together. They have time and memorial, t- crime and poverty, right? What's the connection, I wonder? Uh, but that's a whole that's a whole other library's worth of discussion right there. <clears throat> also, there was a lot of just plain ignorance and who gives a shit? Life is already hell anyway kind of attitude there. Yeah, there was that. Um, <clears throat> for instance, there was some there was always some people in these um not the majority but the minority in these tenement buildings and in the 60s these were the same these were still the same buildings that had been slums as far back as the 1890s where my grandparents came uh poor as uh you know as mice from Europe in the 1890s and around 1900 same buildings um so these tenement buildings um the, they didn't, a lot of these people, I said a lot of them, minority, sometimes it seemed like a lot, but a minority of them in the buildings just didn't care. They didn't care. They didn't use the few old iron garbage pails out in front, but uh, they tossed their garbage, bags full of dry and wet garbage, out the back window or hallway windows of the buildings into the alleys and backyards of the buildings. Just tossed it out. I mean, there were buildings that I used to visit uh, to see uh, clients in the welfare department. Uh, they call clients, I guess they were. There were buildings where the trash was, no, no exaggeration, was 15, 20 feet high in the back sort of uh, alleyway or the well of the building that was surrounded by other buildings. Um, and, of course, there were hundreds and hundreds of rats swarming around. You could just see them out there, like a nature preserve for rats. And this is true. But, but even though these buildings had junkies and drunks and lunatics in the hallways and hanging out in the front sometimes, still most of the tenants, I'd say, you know, 85, 90 percent of the tenants, mostly women with kids, same old story, right? Uh, often no husbands or men around. They tried to keep the places clean, just like uh, when my grandparents came over and maybe your grandparents and somebody else's grandparents, people came over in the... Uh, 1880s, 90s, 1900s, 10, 20, you know, that, that's my grandparents' sort of generation. They, they lived in these places, uh, in some cases worse off, uh, worse slums uh, in terms of poverty, pure poverty, than there is now. There was no government assistance whatsoever, and charity sometimes didn't uh, cover them. They just lived, some of them just starved to death, who died of tuberculosis, the conditions were so bad in the buildings. <clears throat> but they tried to keep, but the only thing they always tried to do was to keep the places clean. Even when I'd go to visit some of these places, which were just like the ends of the earth, you know, right in the middle of the city in these, in these uh, neighborhoods, uh, people were out in the front sweeping off the stoop, sweeping the hallways, right? Um, you know, keeping the place clean. They spent their whole day keeping the place clean because it was so easy for these places to get dirty. There was no super ever in evidence, no superintendent. 
who came in with a staff, you know, like you see in very big buildings uh, in Manhattan. In a lot of buildings, they have uh, supers and a staff that maintain the boiler, that uh, keep every place clean, that, you know, that, that sweep the hallways, that throw out the garbage, uh, that make sure every container is closed. There, were no, there was no such thing. So people did it themselves, right? Um, <clears throat> and when you think about it, this argument of the landlords, um, it was ridiculous that they could claim that the people who lived in the buildings deliberately broke toilets. I mean, think about it. Deliberately broke toilets, smashed them, or refrigerators, or sinks, or light switches. Why would they? Why would they? No matter how dim or uneducated they might be in some cases, why would they destroy the actual place they and their children lived in? They wouldn't. They didn't. And the landlords, you know, they just never fixed anything. <clears throat> you know, I, looking back, I'm going to have some water. You want some water? Have some with me. Take a water break. And later I'm going to have some throw coat tea. I don't care, do you, Melania Trump. Oh, Jesus, this woman from outer space. <clears throat> you know, look at her face. I don't understand. I mean, Trump is, he's got an animated face of pure, he's like something from some medieval um, illustration of a, of a morality tale. He's greed. He's anger. He's uh, whatever it is. He's envy. You know, he's got that. That face where it's all, all the awful things he's ever done are etched on his face. But she looks like soulless to me. She looks like she doesn't even have a soul. Obviously, she does. She has a heart and a soul. She even managed to come out and sort of sideways condemn her husband, whatever their relationship is, her husband's um, um, you know, <clears throat> executive order or personal direction to, uh, to take little children away from their mothers and fathers. I mean, she actually managed to say that was not the right thing to do. Can you imagine that? That was like, you know, forthright for her. I don't know. What's her deal? I mean, it's, it's all uh, like everything else in his life. She's part of a deal, a negotiation. You know, he sees her and he meets her. He's attracted, whatever that means to him, to her. Um, <clears throat> and I'm not going to judge anybody else's attractions, as strange as mine are, <laughs> in my own head, anyhow. Um, but he's attracted to her. I don't think she's attracted to him, but who knows? I doubt it. What do you think? Raise your hands. I don't know. But that he's attracted to her, <clears throat> and um, she was Miss something or other. You know, she's a model, and um, he you know, sleeps with her or marries her or sleeps with her. And um, that's the deal, and that's been the deal the whole time. Um, where was I? But she's got that look on her face, that look of, and maybe it's because she needs to live in total denial. But if she's, you know, she needs to hide. She's hiding in plain sight, this woman. There are times when I feel sorry for her. I don't feel sorry for him. But there are times when I feel sorry for her. That, uh, I mean, she made her deal, and she's living with the deal right now. She's got a child. She's a mother, right? And I don't know what kind of mother she is. Maybe she's a good mother. <clears throat> but that she could fly around. It's better if she never went anywhere than to make these absurd statements and wear these fashion statements in places where people are dying or poor. Better she just stays in the West Wing. Is it the West Wing? The East Wing. That's where they live in the East Wing. And just shuts her mouth, you know? I don't care, do you? What kind of thing is that? I don't understand it. Anyway, as far as landlords and all these arguments they made, <clears throat> they made to me, 
looking back on it now after like 50 years, I'm not old, 45, 50 years, I can see that <clears throat> some of these landlords had a case to make in some cases. But usually it was just rampant capitalism and racism at work, just like what it is with the immigrants here. There's no immigrant problem. There's no infestation of immigrants. There's no crime. The, the places where there are immigrants or illegal aliens in this country have the lowest crime rates compared to other places in this country. We're, we're native, you know. We're good old-fashioned, regular white Americans are. That's where most of the crime is. Crime rates are lower in the areas where immigrants are in general than they are in other areas. There's no threat here. There's no overwhelming wave. It's just pure racism. This is a whole lot of ignorant, bigoted white people, basically, um, of various um, denominations and possi possibly classes who are afraid of um, <clears throat> all these people who are a different color and speak a different language. It happened throughout history in America, right? Happened with the Irish, happened with, uh, happened with the Jews, the Italians, <clears throat> happened with the Chinese. This is the way it goes. This is America. Um, and that's what it is. That's what it is. But uh, basically the same thing with these landlords. I mean, um, the, uh, you know, it was capitalism, just greed, Greed, out of control greed, like with Trump, and racism. And here we have it with him again. This is the people, it's that noise, the noise is me getting through a coat. He's, you know, this is him and his people, you know, and will they vote him in again? Now, he was three million votes shy of what Hillary Clinton had. So obviously there's something wrong with our electoral system. Uh, that's great stuff. I mean, it tastes like, well, I won't say what it tastes like, but... It does help. <clears throat> Anyhow, yeah, out of control, racism and capitalism. So what's new in America? <clears throat> or maybe in any other country too, but it's really bad here now. Anyhow, like I said, <clears throat> the deck was stacked against the tenants. I mean, if somebody could get or take time off from their jobs, which was always hard to do, and spend hours and hours in the hallways and the hearing rooms of these housing courts, uh, the law and the rules and the landlords' disgusting lawyers – uh, and the uh, the laws and the rules about housing, of course, uh, were were introduced and passed um, by the state legislature in New York, which is really owned by landlords and other corporations. But basically, landlords own uh, the New York City, the New York State Legislature. They're the ones who make the rules and the laws about housing. Talk about a stacked deck. And and then the landlords, you know, these filthy lawyers, that these sleazy bastards that worked for the uh, landlords. Uh, with no souls whatsoever. Um, they always wound up winning, and the repairs wouldn't get made. Plumbing didn't work. Heat was insufficient or missing altogether, and there was no extermination or repairing ceilings or walls or fixing stoops or mailboxes. And after a while, you live in a place like this, even the strongest, uh, the most positive person tends to give up. People move out. They find some way out of there. Whatever way it is, they find some way out. School, uh, education, uh, a good job, uh, crime, some way out. Because if you don't get out, you get sucked down into, into the, the uh, bottomless melancholy of living in, in a slum. And, uh, <clears throat> and you know, it, with, this land, with these landlords, and still now, it, it wasn't, and it isn't now, it's just the poor. I mean, people, 
right now, I mean, there are people, a lot of these stories in the paper, it's people with working class jobs, you know, people making um, $25,000, $35,000 a year, or even making $40,000, $50,000, $60,000 a year in these, uh, in these places, that these rat landlords, in order to empty out a building or make Ill- illegal renovations, they victimize anybody they can. And maybe only once in 10 years is a landlord sent to jail for their crimes. I mean, it's extraordinary what they do to people, how they ruin people's lives every single day. And hardly any of them ever go to jail, which is where they belong. I mean, <clears throat> if, the, if the regular courts, if the state criminal courts uh, sent landlords to jail uh, with the media covering it for 10, 20 years uh, for what they do to people, the lives that, that they ruin and make people miserable and uh, the health problems that, that, that people get and the melancholy people fall into <clears throat> and the state they have to live in. If they, if they sent routinely, they sent landlords to jail, there wouldn't be so much of this behavior, but they don't. I mean, New York City is a landlord city. <clears throat> it's a building owner's city, like most cities probably, but even more so. I mean, it was from the beginning and it continues that way till the present day. It was a place, as soon as the first Europeans showed up, based on money, on property, on pure materialism. That's New York. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech that you read about in other colonies, despite whatever their uh, other horrible drawbacks. But the you know, people who came here for freedom of religion and freedom of speech, these were not top priorities for New York City. It was money. It was always money. This is money city. And um, <clears throat> the ethnicity of the landlords which you read about in the paper, it changes every couple of generations. I mean, way back in New York City history, it was the British and the Dutch. Then it was the Irish, then the Italians, then the Jews, especially (sighs) the Jews because of an old country European emphasis on property ownership. The Jews were forbidden in many and even most places in Europe from owning property. So when they got to the United States... A lot of them went overboard in the other direction and uh, bought up all this property. Uh, now they said, now I own something. Now I am a landlord. Now I am not a victim of the uh, insanity and the anti-Semitism <clears throat> and the, uh, the racism of uh, the lords of the land in Europe, right? So Jews, a lot of Jews bought up property and... Now in New York City, to the, you know, in, in modern times, it's still sad to say a lot of Jews who also own these buildings. But also now, it's Muslims and Chinese, right? Whatever wave of people who finally, uh, and, you know, Koreans. Um, it's whatever wave of people have come to this city and after a couple of generations have also found a place, instead of being victimized like they were in a lot of other places, now they are the victimizers, this is the choice in a capitalistic society. I'm not you know, necessarily a, an out-and-out socialist, and, uh, and I'm not condemning capitalism like some knee-jerk um, you know, leftist. I don't even know that much about it. I mean, I know what it is, but I, I can't you know, explicate the whole thing. But um, this, is, this is how it works. I mean, in this system, uh, the idea of being a victim or a victimizer is really where it's at. I mean, this is, uh, this is how it is with Trump and all the people who, you know, his, uh, <clears throat> all the people he appointed, all the people in the Republican Party who want to get rid of, now they want to get rid of, you know, they've been trying, not now, but always, but now they're trying to succeed in getting rid of what they call entitlements. 
um, you know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. If you're poor, you can just drop dead. And if uh, God, Christian God, probably the Christian God, in some cases the Jewish God, favored you or maybe Allah favored you with, uh, you know, with, um, with money or inherited money or um, <clears throat> the ability because of uh, race or something else to get into uh, or intelligence, whatever, if you were favored in some way to get into a good school, to have a good profession, to inherit money like Trump, Trump is, uh, on top of everything else, he's an undeserving son of a bitch. He didn't, he didn't earn anything. He didn't earn a damn thing. He bought a lot of hotels and buildings and uh, golf clubs. He also was a, uh, a major evictor you know, in this city and I think in Atlantic City too, where his properties were. He's been known to throw people out and to ruin people's uh, whole neighborhoods by building these, monstrous, these monstrosities that he calls Trump Towers everywhere, him and his towers. Did anybody ever man, did any man ever need such huge towers? Why? Maybe Melania Trump knows the secret. Maybe she's telling us something. I don't care. Do you? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, man. The price that people pay for things. So now, you know, they have Chinese and Muslims and, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, the Chinese, there's a lot of Chinese landlords in New York City. There are actual Chinese investors from China and then Chinese-American uh, landlords who live in the city uh, or in the richer suburbs. Same old story, generation after generation, you know, over and over again. Without any regard for housing rules and laws, they buy up solid old buildings, both large and small, and they, uh, and they find ways to move people out who have been there 20, you know, 30 and 40 years. Some of them are old and living on fixed incomes and just struggling to pay the already too high rent. They push these people out by making illegal renovations to the buildings, inside and out. So these places where people live are filled with construction noise and dust and debris, water and sewage services interrupted. <clears throat> Strange people wander around the buildings, or sometimes landlords would actually hire people specifically to go into buildings to scare the residents. People, this, is, this is a profession. People make money being uh, landlords' thugs. And when these buildings are empty or almost empty, the owners cut up the old apartments into small pieces illegally, and then they charge huge, also usually illegal, rents for the smaller spaces and rake in the money. Several blocks in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side in Manhattan, uh, the old Irish and Latino residents and some old-timer Jews were squeezed out, and now the new places are rented to Chinese students and teachers from Colombia um, or who come here to work in the city by Chinese landlords. And um, was it always this way, generations uh, of immigrants renting to their own people um, and victimizing their own people? Because a lot of these people who live in these places, the students especially, and some of the professors or the assistant professors, are living in illegal housing. It's too small. There's not access to light and air. But people don't complain. They're just glad to have a place. And they don't want to get in trouble with the authorities, Right. Now, the city, like I said, was always a landlord city and a real estate developer city. I mean, we have, we have zoning laws, some small areas designated historical landmarks that can't be altered. Uh, certainly, they can't be knocked down or cut up into small pieces inside. But in most of the city, especially as always in Manhattan, buildings are constantly demolished and replaced with giant condominiums and office towers, so the whole neighborhoods are ruined. I mean, all this, all this deconstruction 
and construction, noise, debris, for the sake of people with money at the expense of the poor, lower middle class and what used to be considered the middle class. One of our most landlord-prostituted mayors, the worst, in fact, Edward Koch, his name was Ed Koch, once famously said, if you can't afford to live here, you should move out of this city. That's the mayor of New York, right? Go fuck yourself if you're poor or if you can't even afford to live here, which a lot of middle-class people can't anymore. Landlord, lord of the land. It's from Europe, right? The very idea not only of ownership of the land that you, that you work and make a living from or have some business on or just live on, but land that you own uh, that somebody else lives on and pays rent to you. The uh, quote-unquote nobility of Europe, all based originally on theft, murder, and owning land, all these nobles, that's where they all come from, vast quantities of land that other people pay you rent to live on. Downtown, Downton Abbey. How do you think those people lived in Downton Abbey? All those lovable old nobility. On rents. And a lot of people lived like crap on the land that they owned. And they did nothing but uh, dress for dinner, right? And have their own problems. The Russian nobility and the French, um, the Russians had serfs, slaves basically, way after slavery was gone in other parts of Europe. Um, you know, and in Russia and French and France, what happened when they had their revolutions? They murdered these people. First thing they did was they killed the landlords. And um, you know, what kind of thing, when you think about a landlord, what kind of thing is that to be in the world where you live off other people's labor, live off the money somebody else pays you just because you own where they live? be a landlord, right? Well, me, for one. It's true. I was a, after all this uh, talk, I was a landlord once. This is uh, confession time for me. I mean, uh, it's more shit, more karmic shit I will have to answer for, and I'm already answering for. Uh, what happened, my father died suddenly in 1975, and he left a pretty good chunk of money, uh, part of what uh, he had in terms of insurance and partially a payment from the National Airline of Turkey, which was responsible for the plane crash in which my father died. 
And at the time, when he left his money, I was making a small living buying and selling all books by mail. That's what I was doing in the world. <clears throat> Just before that, I had been a probation officer for years. But um, a couple of months before he died, the office I was working in uh, was closed. And um, I decided I had enough of the civil service, so I didn't look for work in any other uh, civil service office, which I had done for many years, the city and the state. <clears throat> So there I was, uh, kind of like scraping along on my own, selling books by mail and just getting by, when all this money descended on me, uh, left by my father because of his death, sudden death. It wasn't millions, and it wasn't even hundreds of thousands, but it was enough 43 years ago that if I was careful about it, it meant that I could do what I liked with my life. In fact, living at a certain minimum level, I'd never have to work again. But what I'd have to do with the money right, if I wanted to live without having uh, to punch a clock, is invested in some way. I couldn't talk about capitalism, right? I couldn't just keep drawing the money out of the bank to pay for food and rent the rest of uh, my life. I mean, that way it would be gone if I did that in like three years. I needed to put most of the money in a place that produced an income. So suddenly, when the chance was available to me for all my... Uh, <laughs> For all my talk, right, and for all my – I does this cancel out everything I said? I don't know. Uh, first thing I did was I looked for a bill. Now, why did I do that? I mean, why did I do that? And I lived in my neighborhood. I had this money, right? And in my neighborhood, one was one of the uh, good and up-and-coming ones in Brooklyn, which is now one of the fanciest ones, Park Slope. <clears throat> Buying real estate was something a lot of people were doing. And here's where, the, here's where the, the key is in a way. One thing my father had talked about in the couple of years before he died, was, was buying a brownstone in my neighborhood. He lived out on the island. And us living in this brownstone together, along with maybe a couple of tenants to pay the bills, you know, mortgage, utilities, taxes, all that. Uh, my father, you know, having grown up poor in Queens during the Depression, as soon as he got a profession that paid something after college, he bought a house. You know, like a lot of people, he was a homeowner, owned his own house. Um, now, owning your own house and a bit of land that's the dream. I've been, that was the dream I was talking about. Also. Everybody who grew up poor had this dream and still do, I guess. Then you wouldn't be subservient to some jerk who owned where you live. That's the way it is. See, you wouldn't have to put up with the conditions that weren't under your control. And every two or three years, you'd have to pay more in a lease uh, and, you know, when they raise the amount in the lease for the rent. Uh, and you would have nothing to show for it. And the idea of, of my father being a landlord didn't bother him very much. He was used to owning his own house, and though he had been a pretty left-wing type back in City College during the 1930s and knew a lot of communists there, he had, when he got into his 40s and 50s, become, though he was still a liberal Democrat, more of a capitalist. He made a good living as an engineer and an executive in an international construction company, but he didn't have, uh, except for the house on Long Island, he didn't have many assets. He lived uh, out there, and I lived in Brooklyn, and he really wanted us to live together. He wanted us to have a relationship, finally, that we never had when I was a kid. And I liked it, too, in a way. But um, also, my father, why did he want us to live together? He was a loner all his life and lonely. He didn't like living by himself in his big house out on the island. And as for me, I felt half and half about the idea. You know, I, uh, I like to think that my father would own the house where I lived. I liked that, not some stranger, and that I could see him as often as I wanted. What I didn't like about this idea of his was that he'd always be right there, right? I mean, he needed my company because he didn't really know anybody else in the city but my sister. And she had her own life in Manhattan. 
So basically, I was worried that he would be leaning on me too much to spend time with him. It was fine that we'd spend some time together, make up for what I never had when I was a kid, which I really wanted. But at the same time, I was worried that I'd be suffocated. I wouldn't have my own life. And he might have done that, too, because he needed me so much. (sighs) Families. Um, Anyway, it didn't trouble me too much what he wanted to do, be a landlord, because it was just a wish he had, not something that seemed like it was really going to happen. I mean, maybe if I was more into it, he would have moved forward with the idea, but I wasn't, and he eventually went off to Istanbul and took a job there. Then in 1975, he died in the plane crash, and uh, <clears throat> then the money came to me. Now, around this time, I was living in Park Slope in a little two-room apartment with my girlfriend, and um, uh, I um, went to a local real estate agent. Uh, I put down some money, and in the spring of 1975, I was a landlord. This place it's a be- it was a beautiful five-story brownstone including a finished basement, on a beautiful tree-lined block uh, of similar houses right in the middle of Park Slope. It was a great neighborhood, a wonderful neighborhood, mostly small buildings and a few larger apartment buildings, but still a very human-scale place. Clean, quiet streets, you know, big old shady trees, and the quiet. I keep emphasizing the quiet. I hate noise. There was one main avenue in Park Slope that split the neighborhood, and that's where all the... um, you know, the drugstores, the delis, restaurants, hardware stores, some art galleries, all of that. That's where all of that was. And since there was always uh, <clears throat> a lot of rot somewhere in every apple and it was an up-and-coming neighborhood, there were lots of real estate offices because this was the place to move to in the city. And the house I bought was already occupied by rent-paying tenants. Whoever owned it before had divided each floor, the floor-through apartments, into large studios or two-room apartments. The building was in very good shape. <coughs> Didn't need a lot of repairs or renovations. Um, the boiler, the roof, the walls, the plumbing, everything in good shape. Then about six months after I bought this building, a tenant moved out of one of the basement studios, and I moved in. By this time, you know, I, I broke up with my girlfriend by this time. So I was on my own, and I moved into this studio in this building that I owned. So there I was, living in the same building that I owned, um, which seemed to make it better for me, that I wasn't, you know, an absentee landlord, even though I only lived a block away originally. Uh, later, when somebody else moved out uh, on the same floor in the basement, I moved into the garden apartment. So that was a little larger studio, and it had a backyard, which is always a very big deal in the middle of the city. Um, I uh, <clears throat> I always had the usual attitude still about landlords. They were creeps, mercenary bloodsuckers, the usual. And, um, you know, but uh, I ran into a different kind of landlord in Park Slope, a landlord I had never met before. These are people who owned their own buildings, you know, and these were the, like two-story, th- like three-story, four-story buildings, but people had been living in them, and it was mostly Italians and Irish. They'd been living in them for generations, and they really kept these places up. They, they love their buildings. Um, the same way you would see somebody who owns a car, polish it, fix it, and everything like that. They took tremendous care of their houses, inside and out. And if someone on the block, like a new owner, let his property run down in any way, even so much as not putting the tops on the trash cans, uh, these people would be on their case. It was one of the things that made it such a great neighborhood. And um, uh, around the same time my father died, I... Uh, did something that I always wanted to do. I used some of the money he left to buy a bookstore. So I had a used bookstore in the neighborhood, and uh, I lived around the corner. I had my used bookstore, which was a great place for me to be, 
People came in and out, uh, bought old books, sold old books, never made much money, never tried to because I was living off uh, the rents and everything. Um, even my, my personal life was in good shape. And I lived – I love this. I, did, I, I, I wish now, right? I lived right around the corner. I lived in this building that I owned and I got up in the morning, walked around the corner to the main street and opened my bookshop. That was my life. Why – I left that. I was a good landlord too, by the way. I was a, I was a good landlord. If, if there is such a thing, is there such a thing? I was a good landlord. Anytime anybody needed something fixed, I fixed it immediately. I put the best materials in. If there was a leak, I fixed it. If there was a problem I couldn't fix right away, I'd let people uh, skip the rent that month or the month after. You know, I didn't need the money desperately. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't something I had to have. But um, uh, and if if a new lease came up. I just sometimes I didn't renew it. If somebody I knew somebody was in trouble, I didn't renew the rent. This went on for about two years, but then, you know, I have sort of condensed all this. Then I just became one. I did one of the stupidest things I've ever done in my life. I decided that I was going to get back together with my girlfriend and move into Manhattan and leave this idyllic, perfect life for me, uh, where I was doing exactly what I should have been doing. And um, I left and moved into Manhattan. And um, <clears throat> I, um, I, when I was in Manhattan, some people came to me and uh, said that they had two other buildings for me to buy. Now I'm just living an absentee landlord. And the same real estate agent that I used before, a sleazy guy with his lawyer or uncle, they came to me and said, there's two other buildings that have recently been vacated, and I decided to ignore what that meant. And so I became the owner of two other buildings. So I own three buildings in absentee landlord. Uh, and er, these two new buildings where I was making money from, uh, now totally sold my soul, um, were, uh, in bad shape. They were in very bad shape. Things went wrong with them all the time. People were calling up and complaining to me. The, uh, one, my best friend at the time lived in one of these buildings because I, I said, move in, you know, I won't charge you hardly any rent. And he lived there, but people were always calling me up. There's something's wrong. This is wrong. That's wrong. And I fixed him as best I could. And finally... Uh, sinking even lower into the swamp of soullessness and greed that I was. Talk about grasping. I, like I had to have this extra money, right? Um, and uh, at this point, I, you know, I, I mean, I had a part-time job. I worked for BAI. It's not that I never worked at all. I mean, I worked for BAI as the assistant manager. But the salary they were supposed to pay me, which wasn't much, and now I had uh, a wife and a child, um, they never paid it. I never paid it. I was the one in charge of BAI paying salaries. I never paid it to myself because um, there was hardly any money to even keep the lights on or keep the station broadcasting. So although I worked all this time, there wasn't enough money. So I felt like I had to grasp more money, right? And, uh, you know, all excuses. What excuses people have for making money off other people? Anyhow, finally things got so bad. There were so many complaints. These, uh, these people came to me, the landlord uh, the, the lawyer and the real estate agent, they said, we've got a deal. We're going to turn these two buildings. Uh, by now, I had sold the other building just to get more money, the original building. So I had these two older buildings. We're gonna, they said, we're going we're gonna to renovate the buildings, and we're going to uh, sell them each apartment. They were floor-through apartments. We're going to sell them as uh, co-ops or condominiums, whatever, um, condominiums. And we're going to make a tremendous amount of money, you know, a couple of million dollars. And they uh, persuaded me. I guess I didn't need much persuading because I was sick of people complaining to me since I was the landlord and these were 
hard buildings to maintain, I let them uh, go into partnership with me. I sign a partnership deal with them. And they, um, they uh, you know, gave me a 25% uh, you know, uh, you know, cut of everything. And um, then they started to go about doing what every landlord ever did that I ever knew to my utter damnation and guilt. They hired thugs to come in and break things and scare people, just exactly what I saw when I was working back in uh, Lower East Side in Brooklyn. They uh, didn't fix things. They didn't turn the heat on right. Uh, they didn't uh, put enough trash cans out. They didn't plaster. They didn't paint. They wanted to scare people out. They wanted to get rid of people in the buildings so people would vacate the buildings and they would, uh, you know, sell these places. And um, that's, uh, that's what they did. And here am I getting calls from everybody in the building, including people I know, you know, for a couple of years out in Brooklyn and my best friend. And... Um, they're telling me that I have to stop this. I go out to these people, these guys I'm in partnership with. I say, you've got to stop doing this. Finally, things got so bad between me and my quote-unquote partners that I threatened to go to the New York State Attorney General and turn them in and me too. So they saw what they were dealing with, uh, you know, a hopeless uh, idealist and a jerk, not a businessman, that's for sure. <laughs> Somebody would bring them all down. And they finally, because uh, of what was happening in Park Slope at the time, it was all these new tenants groups that had hired lawyers to, uh, to stop this kind of behavior, which was happening all over Park Slope. Uh, one thing led to another. And in 1983, eight years after I inherited this money and bought my original house, um, everything was sold and at a very, very low price. My partners were disgusted. One of them actually did lose his real estate license and almost lost his law license. And... Um, I, I had to go back to work, get an honest job, and I became a paralegal, 1983. <clears throat> Is there a moral to this story? Uh, if there's one that I can pick out of the delusional fog of my own existence, which continues to this day, it's to attempt to understand, right, when you're well off. And by well off, I don't mean having plenty of money. Understand, I'm talking to myself, right, understand when you've got what you really need and stop right there. Never confuse money with love. Uh, my rise and fall was fueled by ignorance. You know, it was grasping, pure grasping, with the Buddhist concept of grasping, which is just another word for greed. The house, those houses, that the psychological part was they represented the original house and even the houses later. They represented my father to me. It was my father in brick and stone. I mean, back in my early 30s, I was still stuck in it when this was happening. I was still stuck in a dark psychological swamp, like of rage, guilt, delusions. I wanted more because I thought it would bring my father back. And in, in trying desperately to get more and to get him back, I lost the actual thing my father left me, you know, the real stuff that he left me, the ability to live a decent, you know, life and, and, and not have to uh, go to some job or be a tenant again like I became. Um, and that's what I, he really left me, this ability to do that, and I threw it all away because I was so confused and greedy. Um, and I say, you know, how many of us are lucky or hardworking enough to figure out at a young age, right, and not follow some awful path to throw away, to figure out that we shouldn't throw away the good things that were given to us by providence? I mean, who knows that stuff when you're in your 30s? So, and I know this is to be the case from some friends of mine and some listeners that have communicated with me over the decades. You can, no matter how old you are, uh, you can really do it. You can turn it around. Better late than never. 
in life for free But you can give them to the birds and bees I want money Is confession good for the soul? I don't know. <clears throat> we'll see. Anyhow, that's my horrible past. This has been Mike Fader. This sort of still is Mike Fader. And um, thanks for listening. I will see you next week. Well, it's all. Wonder what tomorrow will bring. Maybe a damn rain. Well, it's all.